I was oh, like, weird that the keyword Tesla like made its way onto the moon. I mean, he knows how to deal with patrons, right? So I'm sure he was thinking about that. He had to that. Yeah. I hate this project. I hate everything about the present we're living in, that this is like the thing. It's just space junk. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Welcome back to the Artnet Roundup, our monthly podcast where we discuss and try to parse some of the biggest stories of the month. I'm Kate Brown, and I'm joined today by our in-house critic, Ben Davis. Hey, Ben. Hey, Kate. And we're also joined today by Andrew Russith, our new Artnet Pro editor who's just joined us. Hey, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, we're so happy to have you on the team, Andrew. And I think as I told you in one of our recent meetings, I've long been a great fan of your art writing and especially your art criticism. So it's just fantastic to be working with you the last few weeks. And I'm excited about everything that's to come as well. Likewise. Excited to be here. Andrew, where you been? Your beloved art critic and editor and, you know, man about town. I think maybe some of your fans out there might be wondering, where you been? All right. For the past about three and a half years, we were living in Korea. My wife's an editor at the New York Times. We moved out there so she could help set up the bureau. Yeah, just moved back. Missing Seoul, but glad to be back in New York because there really is just, for the art world, there's no place like it in terms of the sheer density and sheer excitement of what happens here every day. You weren't, like, seduced by the Korean culture boom that I read so much about? No, I was. I was. I mean, I could talk about it endlessly. I mean, it is, everything people say is true. It's incredibly, incredibly exciting. But just the one thing I really missed was, I now have been to Chelsea a few times, and walking through Chelsea, where you can just hit gallery, 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 right, and do 20 shows in an afternoon, there's no equivalent to that in Seoul. Things are more dispersed, things are a little bit trickier. And I need like just that constant stimulation. So I'm glad to be back in the mix. Yeah, well, we're glad to be working with you. And on the note of, you know, New York's densely populated art scene, I'm curious, like, what have you guys been seeing lately? Andrew, I defer to you on this because people should follow Andrew's Instagram if they don't, because it's like the best coverage of on the ground stuff in New York. I've told you we should just publish your Instagram reviews <laughs> on the site. And you, and I, I, I know saying, you I think have that to that actually make the that... magic trick, that, you, that you're going to well, overthink it. Then. I'd have to put some effort into them. Uh, but but um, no, I mean, it's it's been fun for me to be back because, you know, people have moved. I'd come back a couple times during the pandemic. And um, still, though, I'm like, I don't know where galleries are in Tribeca. There have been some Chelsea moves. So I've been running around as much as possible. I mean, a few highlights from recently are both Mark's shows are really great with Via Selman's new work. Matthew Mark's classic. The gallery, yeah. Yeah, Matthew Marks, very classic. Not Karl Marx, Via the Sel- political thinker. Not, <laughs> no, Matthew. Um, just really excellent painting, some sculpture. She has this great sculpture, totally trompe l'oeil, looks like a coiled rope shooting up into the air, which of course is made of bronze, but then has kind of the found rope that it's based on. They look like these paintings of the night sky like she does, but they're in fact snow that have fallen on a jacket quite large. And the other Matthew Mark show is Martin Beret, amazing, incredible abstract painter, late 70s work. That, I think, is up for a couple more weeks. Really fantastic. By the time this comes out, actually, it might be just about to close. And then the other big one that, Ben, we've talked about is Thomas Herschel. Yeah, I was going to say. Gladstone. I was going to say. There's no show like it in town. I mean, just over the top. What do you think about that? I'm still thinking about it. And, you know, I haven't processed it enough to write anything about it. But my first impression was like, 
that, and for people who haven't seen the pictures or anything, Thomas Hershorn always works with kind of fragile materials and, and these big installations. And this is just this gallery filling show of like a internet cafe with like images of atrocities and all the screens. And there's just styrofoam bits everywhere. It has a great combination of fragility and kind of offhandedness of this kind of broken materials with these really specific details. Like you'll see like one of the computer desks has like lines of cocaine like built up out of <laughs> styrofoam bits and kind of a frightening and terrifying show. And I'm not sure I know exactly what to think about it, but I will say that a curator asked me recently, what do you miss? You know, what's the kind of art you're looking for that you feel like you don't see anymore? And I went into that show. I was like, oh, you know, I kind of miss this vibe, this kind of like ambitious, weird yeah. installation vibe. Mm. I feel like it did hit a note that I had been missing in my kind of yeah. art diet. Yeah. Everything else feels so polite in exactly, comparison yeah. and tidy. Yeah. And it was just, I had forgotten what a kind of like maniac he was Messy. and just the kind of mayhem, yeah, that he could strike up. Yeah, it was fun. But it's fun is the wrong way to say it. it it's it's just, it's it's messy and it grabs your attention and it feels like you don't quite know what's happening and it's troubling because of the subject matter. Yes, yes. And pulls your brain in a bunch of different directions that I think is productive. What's going on in Berlin, Kate? Actually, the main thing that's top of mind is the Berlinale, which is a film festival. And mm. every year I look for some art adjacent films and try to pick one or two that I make time for. And That's luckily awesome. this year, one of the ones that I was like, I'm definitely going to this actually won the Golden Bear on Saturday night. And I really recommend everyone to see it. It's called Dahomey and it's by this director called Mati Diop. It's a documentary about the return of these 26 sculptures from France to Benin and kind of like what happened after they were announced as being restituted. So kind of like everything behind the headlines, basically, from the moment that they were packed up in France and how they were received. And it's just an incredible documentary. It's also kind of like spoken through the perspective of one of the sculptures. It's been returned. It's got this kind of object ontology to it. It's really compelling, and uh, I was happy that I saw it, too, because it also won the Golden Bear, which is, you know, you feel like you never go to the one that's going to win, but it was deserving. And it's really right up your alley in terms of interest and things you've covered and written about and care about. And uh, I guess it'll kind of relate to things we're going to talk about later in this conversation. For sure. Perfect. For sure. So, yeah, we've picked out three big stories from the feeds. The Dean Collection going on view at the Brooklyn Museum, which both of you saw this past weekend, a major exhibition called Giants. And then we'll take a look at some news out of Venice, namely the Dutch Pavilion's project there, which is seeing an important work of colonial art go on view, actually in the Congo, but not in Venice. So we'll talk about that. And of course, we can't skip Jeff Kuhn's moon landing. Let's get into it. I mean, I'm curious about this uh, Swiss Beats collection show, which you guys both saw. What is up with that? What's in it? Well, Andrew, you edited a big story on that for Artnet Pro. Yeah. So maybe you can... Walk us through why we're talking about it. Absolutely. One of our columnists, Katia Kazakina, wrote, I think, a pretty great column delving into some of the issues around this show. She wrote the headline, which I'll read. It was, should museum show art owned by patrons? It's tempting. It can also blow up. And what Katia got into was Swiss Beats was, until October, a board member at the Brooklyn Museum, along with his wife of uh, about 14, 15 years, Alicia Keys, they've been collecting just an incredible trove of Black artists from around the world. This was in the works for about two years. And many listeners may remember that, I mean, this is an issue that has kind of generated a fair amount of controversy in New York before. If you flash back to 2010, 
Dacus Janot, the shipping magnate, had Jeff Koons curate a show at the New Museum of his collection, which, of course, New Museum being a very kind of countercultural institution historically, people got quite up in arms about this, or some people, some activists, about the fact that this show could inflate the value of the work. Potentially, it could have ethical concerns. It was a real firestorm. And so, so she looked at the Dean Collection, which is the name of the joint collection of Alicia Keys and Swiss Beats, and sort of asked the question of why there hasn't been that sort of uproar this time when it would seem to present some of the issues. And to Anne Pasternak's credit, the director of the museum, she got on the horn with Katya and kind of walked through her planning. Swiss Beats resigned from the board as part of this. She said they went through all sorts of conflict of interest processes. The board itself voted on the exhibition. They voted unanimously to proceed with it. There were some donations from the collection. And what Katya did was also just a kind of broader deep dive. I mean, there was a show at Tate Modern recently of Pierre Chen's collection, quite expensive masterworks, the sort of things that museums really can't buy nowadays. And that was quite criticized aggressively in the British press. And um, talk to different people about how you look at these things. Sort of funny. You should talk about the stories that people are talking about. This is funny because it's like, this is a story people aren't talking about in public in a certain kind of sense. I mean, it is true. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is that people behind the scenes are saying things about it. Like Katya, I think, was maybe one of the first people to write about it. But I mean, I know lots of arts professionals who are raising eyebrows about it. Exactly. And so that's why I was so glad she took it on. And what she found was pretty interesting, I thought, which was that the AAMD, the Association of American Museum Directors, which does put out sort of industry guidelines for many aspects of museum practice, like when it's appropriate to deaccessioning, for example, what you use the funds from deaccessioning for. They actually don't have rules around this. They put out a white paper about 15 years ago, and they said, you know, there are about 15 questions you can ask about when to show a patron's art. You know, is it a person who has a history of philanthropy? What sort of financial strings are attached? Pasternak, I think, gave a great quote to Katya, which is she just said, the benefits of doing the show, this is a quote, far outweighed any outdated perceptions of what museums should or should not do. Outdated perceptions. I'm curious, like, were there some eyebrows being raised behind the scenes in New York, like before the show opened in the early fall that would have caused them to decide that he should step down from the board? I don't think that's in the story. I think it does speak to an awareness that this is mm. weird. Yeah. And that Dacus controversy in 2009, 2010 was a big deal. In my mind, it's like kicks off the modern cycle of protests against art museums and questioning around patronage. Yeah, and literally the curator I was talking to, important New York curator, was literally saying this. Okay, so it's fine when Swiss Beats does it, but it's, it's <laughs> not okay when Dacus does it. I mean, that's the kind of thing people are talking about. And usually these kinds of collection-based shows are in the context of a donation, right? And I think that was also kind of one of the key Mm. issues with that 2010 show was that he's not giving this collection over. He's just getting the benefit of this museum context and then can potentially resell them. That's a similar concern with the Dean collection, in a sense? Yes. Yeah, no, you nailed it. The new museum does not really have a permanent collection. And so there was not going to be any gift of work in that case. In the case of the Brooklyn Museum, the Dean Collection, Swiss Beats, and Alicia Keys have given a number of works to the museum. The question you asked is a great one. I think that Anne Pasternak was sensing probably the gallery dinner chatter about these things and anticipated an issue and took the necessary steps or what she felt were the necessary steps to potentially nip that controversy in the bud. I have so much to say about this show. And Andrew, you and I both went on Saturday. I'm so glad I did 
I find it a very weird show. Like, what did you think of it? Actually, and particularly with these questions in the background, it was packed when I was there. I mean, Swiss Beats and Alicia Keys are celebrities. Alicia Keys was just at the Super Bowl. Couldn't be better marketing for them. I'm super curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, my basic thoughts were I approached it from that and Pasternak quote, which was, did the benefits outweigh the costs? And yeah, it was packed. I got there a couple hours after you late afternoon. Tickets were sold out for the day. People seemed to be super into the show. It's large, substantial, famous, valuable work for the most part. One thing that struck me was that a large percentage of the work in the show is by artists who are already represented in the collection. Or interesting. You could get on loan pretty quickly, right? Hmm. Like a New York museum would loan this. So if you wanted to do this show of, say, just great contemporary black artists from around the world without these patrons, you could do it, I think, pretty easily. Derek Adams, Shabalala Self, Kahinde Wiley, of course, many represented. Incredible art. I mean, like, apparently yeah. they have the largest collection of Gordon Parks, who's like this incredible photographer, a giant of photography. And yeah. I'm looking at that wall, I'm like, this is amazing work. But then I also am like, wouldn't it be great yeah. to see a Gordon Parks show? I mean, when was the last right, exactly. Gordon Parks director? And, and interestingly, I mean, if the Brooklyn Museum website is accurate, apparently Gordon Parks is not really represented in the collection. There might be a work or a portfolio or something. So that was exciting to see. But yeah, what I guess bothered me about the show was that if you're in the industry and you've gone to art fairs over the past few years, you've seen a lot of this work. Or if you've even been going to kind of leading museums, you've seen Nick Cave sound suits, for example. I mean, these are well represented. So I wish there was a little bit more weirdness. The things I liked the most were like Ernie Barnes had a few. And then the South African artist Esther Malanga. It was great to see those giant abstractions. But otherwise, it just felt a little predictable. But what did you think? I mean, there are aspects of the layout, the text that we should get into that are fascinating. Okay, let me paint a picture for you. Okay, so there are some great artworks. Let's just establish that as a ground rule. And it's all framed around uh, representation of black artists. Let's just say table stakes. That's an important project. But it's a weird show. I mean, I have actually never seen a show exactly like this, where it's like such a homage to the collectors behind it. I mean, it is like, these are modern Medici's who are changing the canon of art. Like, you walk in, and there are these two giant Kahinde Wiley paintings right there of Alicia Keys and Swiss Beats, and these are 2024 works. These are factory-fresh Kahinde Wiley just saying, these people are absolute themselves giants, you should pay homage to them. And then there are two or three more images just of them by the artists that they work with celebrating them. And I just have to mention the one I find most odd, weird, strange is from a photo shoot they did for Cultured Magazine, where they have a classic Gordon Parks image of the Black Panther, Eldridge Cleaver and Kathleen mm. Cleaver. And they did a photo shoot recreating themselves as these black revolutionaries where Alicia Keys has an Afro hairstyle to mimic Kathleen Cleaver. They're wearing the same colors. And it is like Eldridge Cleaver would not approve of this show. OK, like this is what Huey Newton, another Black Panther, calls pork chop nationalism. You know, this is like a specific kind of focus on elevating the black bourgeoisie. That is what this show is now. We can debate, you know, who's right, who's wrong there. But it is like, it is wild. Like the fact that that's where we're at politically is that like that kind of repackaging of black revolutionary culture as 
this kind of celebration of just wealth and opulence. I mean, this show contains on display the issue of Architectural Digest that their art collection was featured in, where they profile one of their three different homes where they have this art. I mean, it is crazy, this show. I mean... That sounds wild. But I do wonder, like, thinking about the way, I know these are very different exhibitions, but the way that Hannah Gatsby's popular power was harnessed for their last show, it does feel like museum revenues are dwindling. So to sort of put them in the foreground also is a way to get more people into the museum. And, you know, obviously, like, these are the best ofs that we've seen at fairs and that we see in museum shows. But I guess that, like, you know, as you say, there's all these lineups of people that probably don't go to all the fairs and see all of these artists. So is there an argument for it in that sense? Well, 100%. Just something else I wanted to say is that I was thinking about the Hannah Gadsby show when I was looking at this because there's such a controversy around that. It also brings in a celebrity. And I just suddenly came to my head something another curator had said to me. You know, when we were talking about the controversy over the Gadsby show and, you know, critical reaction to it. And the curator said to me, you know, when I look at that show, the Gadsby show as a curator, what I see is the institution had no money. They are trying to get something together. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a permanent collection show coming from different places and they're just trying to get something going, you know, to hack together something that works. Yeah, I think that we should be honest about what's happening with this when Anne Pasternak talks about outdated expectations, I mean, I think part of the subtext there is like, look, we need to figure out how to have new kinds of relationships with wealthy and famous people in order to make this kind of institution work. Right, right. Mm. Yeah. And then, look, I mean, I know Swiss Beats and Alicia Keys, they're cool people, right? I mean, I think that that's why the Dacus show at New Museum... I mean, let's just be honest. It's like, he's not cool in the way that Alicia Keys is cool. She is like a platinum musical artist that has contributed a lot of joy to people's lives and that people admire and respect and aspire to to be like. Nevertheless, I do think, look, there's always a price to celebrating art in the context of the individual collector. It, It like weds the reputation of the art to the reputation of a specific person. I mean, you know who had a great collection of black art is Bill Cosby. And that came back to bite the Smithsonian in 2015. You know, there's a lot of controversy after the whole Me Too conversation about him, about what you do. Now, there's nothing like that with Swiss Beats and Alicia Keys, but you will hear a lot about in this show, I mean, in panel after panel about their great vision, about how their vision is artists supporting artists and their mission. But It's not like he's without controversy. I mean, Swiss Beats was really implicated in the largest kleptocracy scandal of all time, the uh, 1MDB scandal out of Malaysia, which is this guy named Joe Lowe, who's still on the lam, who embezzled billions of dollars and used it to like insert himself into Hollywood and hip hop circles. And most infamously gave Leonardo DiCaprio a Basquiat that he bought with stolen money. But Swiss Beats is a major part of this. Let me just read you from the book Billion Dollar Whale about the Joe Lowe case. 
Before he met Lowe, Swizz Beats' business endeavors had pretty much been limited to celebrity endorsements. Lowe represented a source of funding to take his career to the next level. What's more, Swizz Beats owed hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Internal Revenue Service for unpaid taxes. The IRS put liens on his accounts. And then it goes on to talk about how, you know, Swizz Beats was the guy who introduced Joe Lowe to the hip-hop circles. Like, there's an infamous incident where Swizz Beats is present when Joe Lowe is recording a novelty single and he tells Busta Rhymes, you're my bitch. And Swizz Beats was, according to this book, the guy who introduced, through his art collecting, he acted as Lowe's cultural tutor, schooling him on galleries and audiences. I think he took, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of stolen money from Joe Lowe to perform at his birthday that he got in trouble over that became a major scandal for him. You know, according to this book, Alicia Keys and Swiss Beats were hanging out with him long after this has become a major controversy in the Malaysian media. I think there's a quote from the New York Post that says something to the effect of they didn't like him, but they liked his money. You're not going to hear that in this show. So this show is definitely it has to be reputation management. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like they very carefully selected certain media moments, like recreating the Architectural Digest photo shoots versus maybe talking about other media moments like that one. So, yeah. But it still sounds like a lot of worthwhile artists that everyone should go check out, to say nothing of some of the curatorial decisions. Yeah, of course. Worthwhile artists. Definitely worthwhile conversation around it, too. Um, Sorry, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole there. No, it's fascinating. No, that was good material. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy how, you know, like news moves so quickly and, you know, these stories from 20 2015 feel like deep history, but they certainly aren't. So moving on, panning out to Venice, actually, I would love to talk about this Dutch pavilion, which I think is doing quite an interesting project. I know that last roundup, we talked about a couple other pavilion projects and some of the controversies around them. I think this one will be a newsmaker in a positive way is my prediction. So it's basically the Artist Collective, the Congolese Plantation Workers Art League, which they go by CATPC. They're working with the Dutch artist Renzo Martins, and they were accepted for the Dutch Pavilion. And as part of this, a contested ancestral sculpture that's known as the Ballot, which is owned by the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, is being temporarily loaned for the exhibition. But what's interesting about it is that it's not being loaned out to go on view in Venice. It's actually going on view in the Congo. And it will be live streamed into the pavilion. We were talking about this before. It's sort of a surprising decision, but I think it's actually really amazing because the backstory of this collective is that they've been trying to get this work restituted to be brought back to the Congo or at least put on permanent loan or maybe if that's not possible, at least be loaned. And they've had no success with this. So under the auspices of, you know, the Venice Biennale and the Dutch pavilion, they're actually able to get this work to go back to Lushenga in the Congo. It's going to be really interesting, and they're going to also have a bunch of sculptures on view. And as you probably know, the Congo was a colony of Belgium for many years, one of the more brutally exploited ones. And so it's really a form of poetic justice that it's going to be right beside the Belgian pavilion. It's like a couple meters away from there. One thing that amazed me about this is it's kind of exciting. It was not so long ago that the VMFA had turned down a loan like this. The backstory is quite dramatic to get into, but it just strikes me as the stakes and the general museum behavior around these sorts of things is happening so quickly and changing so quickly. And do we have any sense of how this loan came about or why they turned it down in, I think, 2022 Mm. and now they're okay to play ball? 
Yeah, I mean, I did a big story about that back then, and they had had a show that was on view at this gallery here called Kaove in Berlin. That was a six-part documentary about all of their different efforts to try to get this work back. And for two years, they tried. And for two years, they kept kind of getting like non-answers. But then meanwhile, it was going on loan to other Western institutions. And it really just shows how the Western art world will like acknowledge its own kind of safe spaces where they will want to play ball, but then completely just disregard these other spaces where often these works are the most missed. We should probably talk about Renzo Martin's longer projects a bit, but it's a really interesting use of the sort of privileged channels of the art world to push forward political issues, right? I was going to ask what you think about Renzo Martins, who's this Dutch artist. It's a Dutch pavilion show, so it's like he's bringing this art collective in, essentially. Their collaboration deserves a little bit of explaining because, of course, he's a Dutch artist, and I think he might have been invited first, but then he is a longtime collaborator with this Congolese art collective. He's worked with them before they have actually installed this gallery called the White Cube in Lusanga, and any profits that they make from their artworks, they're actually buying back plantation land. It doesn't make all critics happy. Some people have put big question marks over his work, but I think that the way that he works is quite intelligent. Any kind of controversies that come up in these projects, I think that they're not accidents, like the awkwardness of him being a Dutch artist that is using his privilege to platform this Congolese art collective. It brings up a lot of uncomfortability, but I think that he argues rightfully that that's an uncomfortability that we really deserve to look at and like take a long look at. And often I think that the work is quite self-reflexive. I mean, to install like a Rem Coolhouse designed white cube in a forest in Lushanga is like, they're pretty aware of the kinds of rhetoric that they're playing with. I'm a fan. I think it's a lot of conversations around restitution and post-colonialism do get kind of taken up by the art world. But unfortunately, sometimes they're not done meaningfully or have concrete effects in these source communities. And I think that what Renzo and CATPC are doing is really trying to be like, how can we concretize this? How can we bottle this sort of like surplus value in the art world that in the West and really like bring it back and get some of those benefits? What do you guys think about his work? Have you seen any of his work? I mean, he's been around for a while. I agree with you. I would say everyone listening should read Kate's story. And then also I was, to get ready for this, reading the New Yorker story by Alice Gregory, which I think captures what you're saying. I mean, he's he's devoted to this cause and it's uncomfortable and he acknowledges it. I admire the project overall because he's so in the thick of it and just, it's a mess and he acknowledges that. I think he does a thing that, was very popular 10, 15 years ago, which is to try and provoke discomfort, I guess. Mm -hmm. And in a way that sort of passed out of fashion into a more celebratory idiom. But I mean, like he became on my radar with his Enjoy Poverty project, which right. is this film he did where the premise is like, you're telling Congolese people, basically doing workshops saying, you know, it's like, look, your poverty is a resource. Like, look at these Western photographers who make their careers photographing poor, starving people and selling those images, like take charge of that. And you can understand why that provokes people. I think that he is knowingly trying to provoke people with this kind of like very bleak irony that it's only through kind of the outrage that it comes with like poking that sensitive right. spot that you'll get attention at all. Right. It's that like moment where it was Santiago Sierra, it was exactly. Christoph Bouchal, yeah. and you want to like 
puke at the same time you kind of nod your head and the same time there's some value in it and that moment is past. And I don't know. I feel like there is this thing coming back. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Christoph Buchel because that's a great example of exactly when the moment changed, right? There was the Venice Biennale moment where this artist put on display a ship that had gone down with migrants in it who died. And people found this extremely upsetting and offensive. I think the artist was aware of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Suddenly the discourse turned, but this was of a kind of gesture that was very popular and hasn't adapted very well to the present and is disturbing. I think the artist would say, why are you trying to tell a happy story? <laughs> you know? Sure. But it always raises these uncomfortable questions of who's gaining reputational capital, financial capital off of these sorts of gestures. And actually whether that kind of provocation really works. Now, I think Renzo Martin is like, in this case, very self-consciously trying to create like financial circuits to answer some of those questions proactively. That it's like, you no, know, people will really benefit. Yeah. Even just the fact that the work is going on loan around the Venice Biennale has like shown that this is a method, however much one can kind of like finger wag at aspects of it. Like it's clearly working because they were not able to get a loan before. You know, and I think also choosing to kind of focus on the enormity of guilt maybe like is too crazy for some people to handle. But this feels like we're looking at this one sculpture and how this kind of can traverse the world and come back again, be brought back to a source community. And then they have this NFT project around it. So you can buy NFTs of the work and this goes into the coffers of the collective. I do think it's smart art, but it also it's ethical in some really important ways that I think a lot of art sometimes pretends to be and isn't. Did the film you saw help you reflect on it at all or add anything to the discussion for you? Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, I believe that they interviewed the collector who like bought it for 120 bucks, <laughs> you know, because this is a 1931 wow. sculpture and they interviewed him. They had interviews with the director of the Virginia Museum. So they looked at all the different angles of this issue. So I thought it was really great. It's good you bring it up because I hope that they'll put that work on view, at least in some part of the pavilion. Much to look forward to in Venice. Should we move on to, you know, extraterrestrial matters? The exact opposite of Renzo Martin. Yeah. <laughs> Another, I think, knowing use of publicity, I guess we could say that. <laughs> That's true. That's a linkage, yeah. Yeah. Big uh, news. There's a Jeff Koons on the moon. On Thursday, uh, you know, I was in a bar and the news flashing up on the screen was about this SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket landing on the moon. This is like a big deal on its own because it has to do with this boom in private spaceflight initiatives. But it's a big deal in art because there are 125 tiny Jeff Kuhn sculptures in a box on the mission that are going to be left on the moon. These are Tiny sculptures, each one of a different phase of the moon. And that's the story. That's what's happening. (laughs) What what do you guys think of this? It's a strange mixture of being a little half-baked and then yet like so production heavy and over the top. I mean, (laughs) the balls represent off the top of Kunz's head, I guess, people he admires. That's my very That's a very important aspect of this. Each one of them is inscribed with a name of a world historical figure that Coons is like getting their name on the moon. And these include, you know, figures he admires like Jesus, Rosa Parks, <laughs> Malcolm X, David Bowie. Maya Angelou, 
David Bowie, Andy Warhol, Louis the Fourteenth, I think. <laughs> yeah, Catherine the Great's on there. I mean, all fantastic or at least very influential people in their own right, but like so weird of them to all be given the exact same weight, you know? I know. <laughs> I just love I just love the juxtaposition of Malcolm X, Louis the Fourteenth, and then Ileana Sonnabend. That's the best one. Right. Is like who people may not know is an art dealer, you know, a famous and storied art dealer. Another one that stuck out for me was Nikola Tesla, which I was like a little bit like, oh, I guess, like for sure. But then also it's like weird because SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's company, is also partially funding this whole project. I was oh, like, weird that the keyword Tesla like made its way onto the moon. I mean, he knows how to deal with patrons, right? So I'm sure he was thinking about that. He had to have been. Yeah. I hate this project. I hate everything about the present we're living in, that this is like the thing. It's just space junk. Totally. The idea that, you know, when we make contact with extraterrestrials, Jeff Koons may be the first point of contact when they discover his, like, crate left on the moon. I just, mm. what a thought. What a statement by humanity. Have you seen the photos of the sculptures back on Earth, the kind of larger versions of the moon sculptures? Also not so attractive, I have to say. Each featuring a diamond, sapphire, or ruby yes. yeah. on the surface of the moon to suggest... <laughs> where the lander touched down. It's just, it's just so gaudy. I mean, as is often the case with Kuhn's, Ben, you had been pointing out, I mean, some of his rhetoric around the project is the best thing. I mean, I was reading, when the project was announced, he was floating the idea of going to space, but then he explained that it was really going to take a year commitment of my time, and with everything going on in the studio, I really couldn't do that. So there was some glimmer, I guess, he dreamed of walking on the moon. But as objects, yeah, not so hot. I was really looking at the work, too, like aesthetically, just like formally, like trying to just ignore all this, like, what a waste of money this potentially was. It reminds me of those, you know, the basketball work that he has where they're all in their case mm -hmm. and they're kind of stacked. Yep. And I think it's called encased, actually. So it kind of references that. But then I was like, if I could send one of Kunz's work to the moon, I would pick the bunny for sure, because that would be so cool. Oh, like, my gosh. One yeah. of those bunnies just chilling on space, like surrounded by moon dust was a weird choice, in my opinion. Right. right. What a missed opportunity. He's one of our great artists, great sculptors. He has such range, such potential. I'm sure there were issues around the weight and the shapes that he could use and certain balance issues. But, oh, what a missed opportunity. Everyone was describing this as the first authorized artwork. And have you guys read about the actual first artwork on the moon? Yeah, I was reading about this. You should talk about it. It was quite fascinating. I mean, this is great. It was like 1969. I think Forrest Myers, not a super famous artist, but if you go down to Soho in Manhattan, there's a site-specific work along Houston Street he did. Right. But he apparently concocted this plan, I believe, with like Warhol and Klaus Soldenberg, David Navros, a few other artists, to create little tiny drawings on a little silicone or ceramic chip. And somehow he had an in to the scientists working at NASA and supposedly stuck it on one of the landers after Apollo 11 in late 69, the second or third landing. So supposedly there's Warhol on the moon, there's Rauschenberg, and you can find photos of this little chip online. Warhol just drew a penis. <laughs> it's quite wonderful. And there's a time story about it. And the Times couldn't print the image. And so they had someone's thumb over... Warhol's thing. <laughs> so I do appreciate that, like, the scene graffiti was actually maybe the first artwork. On the Why do I like that so much more than this Coons thing? I guess it's the different moments. It's like the 60s thing is this moment of 
optimism and experimentation and uh, scientific yes. achievement. And, you know, I think the difference is really the difference between spaceflight then and spaceflight now when it's just like this private thing that's like hawking billionaire yes. space tourism and just blowing through our carbon budget on this like pet project for the world's wealthiest people. And, you know, Coons, I guess, is the perfect guy to represent that. It's also a wasted opportunity. It's like, why coons, you know? It's mm. like there are mm. artists who are interested in science and spaceflight in a way that would feel symbolic and interesting, whereas coons is interested in happiness and luxury goods. It's such a wasted symbolic opportunity. It's also confusing because I was also looking at Coons's Instagram post, and I think actually Adam Schrader mentioned this in his report on the moon landing that Coons did or didn't do, but his work did. And there was another artwork that went up by this artist named, I don't know, his Instagram is Transparent Artist. I'm forgetting his name right now, but that's his Instagram handle. And on all of Coons's posts, he's kind of like commented like, so great to be with you on the moon. My work's also up there. Oh, no. And so I was kind of like, okay, so it's there was a bunch that were sent, but we've only learned about Coons. And then I was also reading, there was also another work that went on the moon, I believe on the Apollo called Fallen Astronaut that they like covertly brought up there. This is interesting, too, because so it's this little sculpture in silver of a fallen astronaut, and it's sort of a memorial of astronauts who had died in space. And they only revealed that they had brought it up after the fact. And then the artist, interestingly, had made replicas similar to what Coons has done and tried to sell them. But then NASA was like, no, you can't make a profit off of our space exploration. Wow. And so he like never was able to sell them. I think like one popped up on eBay recently, but that's kind of it. And the rest are like sitting unsigned in his studio somewhere. So it's also an interesting you brought up this private space travel thing, Ben, because I think that's a big shift too, where an artist can do this kind of a project now, which, you know, you wouldn't have been able to do a few decades ago. Totally. And that gets at it. You know, the Warhol penis drawing is juvenile, but it's like scrappy. And the Coons thing, it's a marketing gimmick to sell these big earth moons with the sapphires. And it's just, <laughs> I don't know, it really triggers like these feeling of despair in me when it's like, this is what we're doing with our last survivable parts of human history. You know, it's just is like, this is art's contribution, you know, is just to use the like godlike power of space travel as just marketing, you know? I mean, it really does put me in mind of, uh, you know, Gil Scott Heron's uh, Whitey on the Moon his classic track about all this. How come there ain't no money here? Because Whitey's on the moon. Yeah. Well, the art world continues to be weird, mesmerizing, problematic, and intriguing. So I feel like this episode shows it's the full spectrum of Yeah, I think <laughs> we go ways. through all those. Yeah. <laughs> Good range. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. This was illuminating and fun to chat through. Thanks, Kate. So nice to chat with you, Kate. As always, and Andrew, so nice to have you here with us. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.